may be seated. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm, Psalm 30. You will follow along. I will read it. I I, um, I do want to welcome the the uh, the video audience. I know that there are those out there. I fail to mention that each week, but uh, it's a delight to know that among the wonderful faces that are here in the presence of this auditorium sanctuary today, that there are many uh, tuning in uh, through Zoom and the. Uh, the video technology. So I trust the blessing of the Lord will be upon you as well. Psalm 30. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hide your face from me. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell you of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned... For me, my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks to you forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. I've given you a simple outline that we will follow in general on, the, uh, on page four, if you care to take notes along the way. The simple outline is rescue, verses one through five, repentance, verses six through ten, and rejoicing, verses 11 and 12. One of the commentators that I have been encouraged by, Michael Wilcox, says about this psalm that Psalm 30 tells us much about God. 
and the way he works in the life of the believer. His healing work in particular teaches us about his saving work in general. He is God, the deliverer. Verses 5 and 11, I suspect, jump off the page at you, as they have for me over the years. I've quoted these two verses from time to time to myself and to others to remind them in times of discouragement that the Lord will see us through. They state the overarching theme of this psalm, that for Christians, the night of his wrath will always give way to the glory of his grace. You have turned my mourning into dancing. The beauty of the Psalms is that they help us to navigate our world of despair and uncertainty and to lead us through that valley of the shadow of death, as it were, to joy in the Lord and heartfelt worship. When we have lost our way in life, psalms such as this help us find our way back home again. It is said to be a song. It's said to be a song of David written for the dedication of literally the house. Now the NIV translates it temple, which shows that the translators of the, uh, of the ESV, I should say, um, the translators favored that particular interpretation. The superscription, the introduction to the psalm before we get to the text, literally translates a psalm. A song at the dedication of the house of David. So the question is, what is the house of David? And two views have uh, presented themselves regarding the house. Some have suggested that it was the dedication of David's house, which he built before the temple was built. And of course, we know David did not build the temple. He wanted to. He had gathered the materials. He had purchased the land on which the temple would be built, and then enter Nathan, who said, you're a man of war, and the one who will build my temple will be your son, the man of peace. Perhaps it was the dedication of David's house that this psalm was written for. But there is a large cadre of scholars who believe that the dedication of the temple is here anticipated, Perhaps a dedication of the threshing floor, perhaps a dedication of the material, perhaps a dedication written anticipated the day when it would be built. I will not resolve that. I will just simply say that you will see these differences in different translations, and we'll let it lie for now. Because for me, I don't think they are critical to the value of this psalm for us. A song of David written for the dedication of the house. 
It's also a song of David when he is recovering from illness. He mentions being healed. And uh, most agree that David, um, he faces all kinds of issues and they are all addressed in the different Psalms. Many enemies are, are seeking his life or seeking to undercut his administration. But there are also death, deathly, de- deadly illnesses that people faced at this time. And very likely David himself is thinking that he might die. We might say today that David is swirling around the drain, as it were, and being rescued in the very moment by the hand of the Lord. Well, in a sense, we've all been there. We've known sickness, we've known loss, we've known disappointment, we've known sin that has set us back. We've known God's displeasure that is fully deserved. But for the believer, these seasons of darkness will virtually always precede seasons of celebration. Martin Luther made an important distinction dealing with issues he saw in his day. He spoke of the theology of glory. That theology, that way of looking at life where everything is going to be hunky-dory, that Christian life is happy all the day, theology. Most people know better. He favored and argued for the theology of the cross, recognizing that life in a fallen world will always be difficult. We will go through the valley of the shadow of death. Our Lord Jesus suffered humiliation before he received his exaltation, and why should we expect any different? The only difference is much of the humiliation that is brought upon us is self-inflicted, because unlike our Savior, we are sinners to the core. And yet God is a rescuing God, who rescues his people in their darkest hours. Thus, we have here a divine rescue. We have a decisive repentance on the part of David. And we have on his part as well a deliberate rejoicing. Let's look at the rescue in verses 1 through 5. And this is summarized in the simple phrase, you have drawn me up. The picture is is of a bucket being drawn up from the bottom of a well. And when we think of a well in which Joseph was cast into until sold to the Midianites, and then eventually sold into slavery in Egypt, it begins to take on a little different hue. When we hear the words of David, when he says in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry and he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. That is a human experience. And thus the Psalms 
treat them as that human experience. He put a new song in my mouth, David says, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and put their trust in the Lord. And so the psalm begins by recognizing that he has a cause for praise and thanksgiving. The trouble that David faces here is is not particularly spelled out, but it's something that is life-threatening. He talks about being brought down to Sheol or the grave, or sometimes that's translated hell itself. He's brought near to death. And what is more, it is nonspecific, but most likely, as I said earlier, an illness, which serves as an awakening call during this period in his life of clearly his spiritual malaise. And David had those periods, didn't he? It was those periods in which he succumbed to sins that followed him all to his grave and cast a shadow over this individual who otherwise was declared to be a man after God's own heart. Apparently, we read, he succumbed to self-confidence and personal arrogance. We'll look at that in a moment. He was near Sheol. He was in the pit or near the grave. He was near death. And yet he was drawn up to the world of the living like a bucket of water drawn from the pit of a well. And thus he praises God. This is an experience that's not unique to David, of course. Hezekiah goes through something similar, uh, as is recorded in Isaiah 38. And perhaps we too have been through similar things. And yet David says, Sing praises to the Lord, you who saints, and give thanks to his holy name. And then this wonderful gospel statement and this is a gospel statement his anger is but for a moment but his favor for a lifetime that is something that is true of every believer in jesus weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes with the morning Hold on to that thought because that is the theme that is mentioned twice and weaves itself through this malaise of David. We see his repentance described as well in verses 6 through 10. Let's look at this. What was David's sin? We don't know for sure. The Psalms are general and that's in some, some sense, really, is really good and helpful because when we read these psalms, when we pray them, we can, in a, in a sense, put our own sinful proclivities into them themselves and say, that's describing me. I've been there. I know what it is. 
I know what spiritual malaise is in my life. So what is it that caused God's favor to seemingly, and I underscore that word, seemingly disappear from David? We don't know for sure, but apparently he succumbed to personal arrogance and self-confidence that fully belonged to God himself. Look at verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity. Most Americans can identify with that. My prosperity. I shall never be moved. Many Americans can identify with that too, if they're honest. And that's an expression of arrogance my prosperity and because of my prosperity i shall never be moved i am safe from all harm because my prosperity is where my confidence lies david fell into that sin he speaks of my mountain he speaks of god by your favor, verse 7, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. In other words, his security, his rock of Gibraltar, his, his uh, immovable ground upon which he stood, my mountain, which he acknowledges that God is the cause of this foundation, but he calls it my mountain, and then he admits, but you've hid your face from me. I was dismayed. God has gifted his people quite often with superabundance. And yet we have found ourselves putting our trust and confidence in the wrong place. And that is a sin that I think Americans, perhaps more than any others in the world, need to be aware of. He repents before God. And he even reasons with God, although in the end, he casts himself upon God's mercy. Verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cried, to the Lord I plead for mercy. And then there's this exchange here where David is bargaining with God for a moment. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? I will, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? The presumption is, if you keep me alive, I can praise you. It's kind of like saying, well, if you answer my prayer, I'll be good for the rest of my life. And I'll do all of these things. But it's not the same kind of prayer that we hear from the lips of Paul, who would later say, but for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The big difference between this exchange and what we later hear from the Apostle Paul. But thankfully for David, he perhaps saw, sometimes you just need to voice what's on your mind, and then you realize just how stupid it is. And he says in verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O oh Lord, be my helper. 
I need help here. Be merciful to me. In you there is mercy. This, these verses are in effect a prayer of repentance. A calling upon God to turn his heart back to where it belongs. To take his sin and deal with it that its consequences might not be felt. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth. And this is what brought Israel down in the midst of Jeremiah's ministry. Hear what the Lord said to Israel as he was, she was entering the land that God had gifted them in his promise. Deuteronomy 8, 11 and following. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have good have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and that all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And this is where David fell. In my prosperity, I shall never be moved. History has shown us that these things can often all be taken away. Then where do we stand? Is our mountain upon which we stand strong enough. Well, if it is Christ Jesus and the promises of the living God, the answer is yes. Understanding God's good hand in rescuing his people in their folly. Understanding the nature of repentance and how God honors those who are of a contrite and broken heart is a cause for the greatest kind of rejoicing imaginable. And that is why we worship the Lord. That is why we turn our backs on the world and we come here. There was a book on worship written some years ago that was deeply encouraging for me. The title of it is worth the price of the book. A Royal Waste of Time. And the idea was when the world looks at what we do on the Lord's day, they look at it and say, you're just wasting your time. The God who you say exists, we don't believe he does. So we're building our empires, we're gathering our wealth, we're building our security on a ground that, though shaky, is the most solid ground that we could imagine. And you're just wasting your time. Because here we are. We're not making money. We're not extending our kingdom. We're not advancing our influence. 
we are wasting our time before the King of Kings. The royal waste of time. I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't miss this day of rest. I wouldn't miss wasting my day in the house of the Lord. And I expect neither would you. And I trust many of others that are a part and parcel to this community. We see David here rejoicing over the transforming grace of God in his life, recognizing that anger, the anger of the Lord is temporal, but his favor is eternal. The night of tears will always give way to the morning of song. That the dirge, the funeral dirge, will turn into the dance of celebration. And he will take us from our sackcloth to the robe of the righteousness of Christ. And here the gospel is stated again. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Verse 11, couple that with verse 5. And you have two wonderful and wonderfully different ways of describing what the transforming grace of God does for those who rest in Jesus' name. This is gospel work at its best. And what's the outcome? That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I give you thanks forever. And don't lose that last word because that is what we are called to do. Now we do it intermittently here at least once a week and maybe sometimes in between. But when we are called home to glory, the worship of Almighty God will be continual. 24-7, if there, is, if there are any clocks on the wall, and I doubt there will be. And God will reorder us such that we will not fade in the middle of it. Because we will worship Him with new bodies, new minds in his new heavens and his new earth. Now this psalm, I like to call it a transporting psalm because it transports us from one place to another, from a place of darkness to a place of light. It takes us from despair to delight. And there are four particular applications that I think are indicated here in this psalm. First of all, this psalm transports us from the darkness of sin and wrath to the joyous morning light of forgiveness and grace. We see this as an overarching picture. The one is temporary, the other is eternal. This song of David confessing how he succumbed to the sin of self-reliance in his own prosperity and self-reliance, giving credit to himself for what God had blessed him with, 
David confessing that. And being brought from this shadow world into the light of day. So this psalm is a transporting psalm because as we pray it, as we work our way through it, as our minds and our spirits lift it up to the Lord, it transports us from the darkness of sin and wrath to the joyous light of forgiveness and grace. But that's not all. This psalm transports us also from the temporal frowning providences of God's, to God's gracious deliverances. In the larger picture of things, I think this is an application. We all know reversals in our life and points of turning in our lives. Unexpected death, loss of property or house through fire or tragedy, uh, failure on the part of relationships that are deeply disappointing. The God who is sovereign over all, though not the author of sin, certainly has a hand in what our forefathers used to call the frowning providences, the dark clouds of God's promise providences. And yet, in the end, God's providences are always gracious to his children. All things do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so this psalm, in its very rehearsal of the gospel, his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. The weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You have turned me from my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And that's not all. This psalm transports us as well from the life of this world to our heavenly reward. What if the cloud never goes away? What if the pronouncement of terminal illness within a year or months, it's not going to go away? When does the dancing come? When does the light of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus reappear in heavenly glory? Because nothing can befall us. The worst thing the world can ever do to us is send us to heaven. The worst thing that anything in this world can ever do to us is send us to glory. This world is the valley of the shadow of death. It is the theology of the cross, as Luther rightly understood. And even our Lord Jesus suffered humiliation undeservedly. But heaven is the height. Heaven is the mountaintop. Heaven is the light of day. It is the favor of the Lord for a lifetime and forever. It's there that He fills me with gladness and dancing and celebration. And so this psalm has 
application in that it transports us from this world to the next and helps us even to anticipate it. And I think there's one more application that we can take from this. That the psalm transports us as those united to Christ. And we have to say that. This is not a psalm that is for everybody. It's a psalm for those who are united to Christ. David was united to Christ before Christ came. He was, in fact, the little Messiah, a very imperfect one whose life demonstrated that we needed the perfect one yet to come. And in this way, David was a believer. As those united to Christ, though imperfect, though often fallen, succumbing to the sins of the world and the sufferings of this world, as those united to Christ, this psalm transports us from the crucifixion to the, uh, and the grave to the resurrection life and eternity. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God in his grace and his glory and in the gospel takes me through the resurrection, through the, the crucifixion, through the resurrection to life everlasting. As dark Friday, we call it Good Friday, it was a dark Friday, both literally and figuratively. It was shrouded in darkness and gloom. It would soon give way to the glory of God and the face of the risen Son of God, Jesus. Some years ago, I tried my hand at poetry. I wouldn't say I'm nearly a success in any way, but it was fun to try. A couple haikus I did for Good Friday and Easter. Dawn bright, wondrous sight. Nope, I jumped ahead. Crucifixion. Dark sky, anguished sigh. Bitter dregs and mocking cry. Veil rent, respite nigh. Then on Resurrection Sunday, dawn bright, wondrous sight. Sleep awakens from the night. Open grave, first light. This psalm takes us through those two moments and thus turns our mourning into dancing and takes the sackcloth on which we are shrouded and tattered and torn and recloses us in the white robe of the precious righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, may we think on these, this psalm in general and these two verses that wondrously suggest to us the transforming power of God in our lives to take us from sin and despair to the light and life that is in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that you would seal these words to our hearts and grant us, Lord, a joyous Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.